Good evening. That was delightful. I enjoyed singing it with the, the guitar accompaniment. We don't hear that very often, and it was, it was delightful. This evening, I'm going to be sharing two verses, and one we're going to memorize together that have spoken to my own heart uh, through the years, actually, uh, from the time I first got saved to through my career, actually. And um, I'll share where that, what, why those verses were so meaningful. And the first has to do with when you have a lot of choices to make, which choice do you make? What is God's will? And um, that will go, we'll go and see how Saul got saved to, to find that verse. And the key verse there is in verse, chapter 9, verse 6 of Acts. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the key verse. There are many times in my life, and I'll share that a little bit in a few more minutes, where that verse was my prayer. And second verse, I had, when we, Betty and I moved to California, I drove the, a car and my, my parents joined me while Betty remained in Maryland until the house was sold. But the Sunday before we left, a brother at the chapel uh, ministered on Psalm 16. And I said, that verse, that chapter, that Psalm meets my need right now. And I decided to memorize it as I drove across the country. In the New International Version, which I was reading at the time, it goes like this. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. And we'll be sharing a few verses there in Psalm 16 also tonight. So it's these, these verses that are verses in times when you have a lot of choices to make and a, a situation where you have no choices to make, but a lot of ways everything can go wrong. If you make the wrong step, okay, or the wrong choice. The second, uh, the Psalm 16, is called a mictim of David, which means it's a golden psalm. And he wrote these in times of trial. But let's go first to Acts chapter 9. This is exciting. Acts chapter 9. And just to give you background, we're going to really start with verse 3, but just by way of background, in Acts chapter 7, Saul is consenting or in agreement with the stoning to death of Stephen after hearing Stephen's testimony. And then he's, in chapter 8, he's wreaking havoc with the church as was in Jerusalem, uh, in particular, uh, hailing uh, men and women probably children too. He was extremely agitated by this threat to Judaism. Uh, to him, Christianity was a, a false religion and he was zealous for Judaism. And he was able to then in chapter nine, extend his anger outward, 130 miles northeast to Damascus. I mean, that's how far and how fast Christianity had traveled in that short time, 130 miles away, into a Gentile a country almost. Uh, there's a few Jews there, but most of the people there were Gentiles, Damascus. 
And so he's extending his reach out there, and he gets uh, the permission from the chief priest, that was Caiaphas at the time, to extend this anger and this hatred uh, to hail in men and women to prison. So that's where we are. He has letters. To, uh, he's a person under authority, as we're listening to uh, our brother this morning. He knew where the authority came from the chief priests, and he had this authority in his he had more hatred towards the Christians than the others, okay? And that was, he was more zealous than anyone else towards Christianity. So verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. So he's on this road, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And we're going to memorize that expression tonight. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the verse. Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So going back to verse 3, uh, uh, suddenly he's walking along full of hatred and anger and scheming how he's going to find all the Christians and put them into prison, probably put as many as he can to death as well. And a bright light suddenly surrounds him. And a voice comes from the, this bright light. So it's obviously the Lord speaking to him out of this bright light. And he heard this voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? A couple, maybe about a year ago, I spoke on young Samuel, who was, the Lord was talking to him and called him Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel's reply was, speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. There are times God is gentle. And here he's gentle even towards Saul. He says, Saul, Saul. Remember, Martha's rushing around. Jesus says, Martha, Martha. So he uses the name twice, which is... Earlier, when I first, before I got saved, okay, this is months before I got saved, there were some gentlemen, some brothers who were trying to show me what it meant to be saved. And they said, well, look, Rick, and I was, I was a bit confused. This is actually a week before I got saved. And they said, well, you go to Isaiah 53 and verse 5, okay? And that goes like this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. He said to me something so simple. If you want to be saved, put your name in there. That's the gospel message. Put your name in there. So I went, you know, I'd read it. But he was wounded for Rick's transgressions. He was bruised for Rick's iniquities. The chastisement for Rick's peace was upon him. And by his stripes, Rick is healed. I understand that now, but at the time, I didn't understand it. It was another verse that really led me to the Lord. But here's the Lord speaking to me by name four times, you see. Here in what we've been reading in chapter 9, the Lord is speaking to Saul two times. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, this is surprising. Uh, Jesus is asking why Saul is persecuting him. Now, personally, I feel that Saul had heard the teaching of Jesus when Jesus was alive. 
that he might have been, been, been involved in the, the, ex, the execution, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ in some way. But now he never, well, he maybe persecuted them then, but now what he's doing is persecuting the Christians, the followers, those he called of the way, okay? And, and which reminds me of the fact that Christianity is not just a belief, but it's also a way of life, okay? The way. We're followers of the way. And so that's who's he, who he's after. Who are you, Lord? That's his first question. Who are you, Lord? My, my sense of this is that he's so full of anger and hatred, all of a sudden this, Jesus appears to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He suddenly realizes that all he's been doing has been is sin. I mean, he's been persecuting other believers. If you did that to somebody else, you'd be, a, you'd be sinning also. That's what he was doing. And it, suddenly he was convicted by it. And he suddenly says, who are you, Lord? In other words, you're judging me. And I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about it, but who are you to judge me? And it's the Lord himself. The Lord has judged him and he convicted him of his sin. And Jesus reveals himself. Now, I was never spoken to this way by Jesus, okay? When I came to Christ, it was by conviction of my sin, but knowing that you have heaven to gain and hell to shun, okay? That, 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 that's, that's the gospel message. And the way to you do it is by trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Say, that's how you could say it, but Jesus never spoke to me out of the light. So Saul had a very special interaction with the Lord at this time. He said, I am Jesus, in verse 5, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a long pointed stick that a, a farmer would use to poke along barnyard animals like goats or oxen. And in a way, he's insulting Saul. He says, you're like, you're like an ox that has to be poked along. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is poking you along. And it's irritating you. And you're under conviction. And you're fighting God's spirit that's working in your heart. And people do that. You may have done that. You might be doing that now, fighting God when he's sort of poking at you through conviction of your sin. Where do you go? I am Jesus who are you're your persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And at this point, Saul realizes that he's dealing with God and the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory is speaking to him. So he's trembling and astonished and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? He's yielded. He's surrendered. I saw this verse, and it really spoke to me. One time, in my, the, the first time in my life, I had gotten my first job teaching at Geneva College in western Pennsylvania. And I started in January. I got my degree in Christmas. Then January is when the this, this semester started. And the pay wasn't much. But I started halfway through the year, and 
I didn't realize it, but I couldn't stretch it through the summer. It ends in May, okay? So this is your pay, January through May. Who knows what happens in June, July, and August until the next year starts, right? So you have nothing, zero, zip. So anyway, about April, I was going to the central administrative office and I got picked up my paycheck at the end of the month. And there on the wall is a plaque with a verse, like those verses along there. It's a beautiful plaque right here, okay? You look inside, the teller has the bars down, you know, and you're looking inside and you're ready to reach for your check. And I'm thinking to myself, where, where am I gonna get my next, where am I gonna get, what's gonna happen in June? So here's this big plaque, Acts 9 to 6. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? This is a Christian college. Very appropriate, right, when you get your paycheck. Now, now what are you going to do? Because it's so small. Uh, it's not going to last through June, July, and August. And that verse just spoke to my heart. I said, that's my prayer. That's my prayer right now. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? So in saying that, there are several uh, points to that verse. And that's the verse I'd like you to memorize. What's the first word? Lord. Next word is what. The next is, do you want me to do? Okay, there's five parts to it. The first part is Lord. That's where you acknowledge that you're dealing with God. And you have these various options. Well, I didn't have many options then, but you're dealing with God. So you address first Lord, and that's the first part of the prayer you need to memorize. Lord, that's how your prayer starts, because that's who you're talking to. It's the Lord. Then what? Okay, it's going to lead to some action. So the question is, what action do I need to take? What? Do you? Not, it's not, Lord, what do my parents want me to do? Lord, what do my, my spouse want me to do? What do my kids want me to do? It's, Lord, what do you? That's the second, that's the third phrase. Lord, what? do you want me to do? Okay, what do you want me to do? It's very personal. You're dealing with God and he wants to deal with you as an individual. It's not, Lord, what do you want the saints to do? It's what do you want me to do? What, Lord, what do you want the saints to do? No, that's not the way it reads. What do you want me to what? To do. It leads to some action, to do something. And that's the prayer. So we've had two important questions by Saul at this point. One is, who are you, Lord? Next is, Lord, what do you want me to do? Two most important questions in the world for you. A Gallup survey from the 1990s asked people to choose three questions they would like, most like to ask God. The top five responses were the following. One, will there ever be lasting world peace? Two, how can I be a better person? Three, what does the future hold for my family and me? Four is, will there ever be a cure for all diseases? And the fifth response, the highest response is, why is there suffering in the world? The most important questions aren't there. Who are you, Lord? 
We all have to ask that question. Who are you, Lord? You know, we could, Jeff and I get up here and we'll be speaking tonight. And without the Holy Spirit speaking to your hearts, you won't ask that question. But we want you to ask that question. Who are you, Lord? Acknowledging that you're dealing with God and you're dealing with eternity. These are important questions. Who are you, Lord? You're the one who's judging me. You'll, as we heard this morning, you're going to judge me. That's one way to meet God. The other is to trust Christ as your Savior, have your sins dealt with, and have a great reunion with the Savior. I mean, there's two different ways to meet God. Who are you, Lord? Then now, what? Lord, what do you want me to do? He was surrendered. He didn't get all the answers right away. If you read in verse 6, then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So he was simply told the next steps. And that's the way it works. It's step by step with the Lord. We don't get the grand scheme of everything all at once. He got more later. In my situation, it turned out we had no money. Uh, this is May, the semester ends, and uh, a biology, a, a godly chairman of the biology department had some extra money, and he gave it, uh, he had me teach one of his classes. Okay, oh, praise the Lord. Okay, totally unexpected, but it came out of nowhere. And when it came, we, I had no other choices, but uh, you know, my prayer was, Lord, what? do you want me to do? And other people kind of stepped in and tried to give me some direction, but it came totally unexpected to teach this one class. So I just thanked the Lord for answered prayer. Anyway, uh, sometimes as a student or teacher, you face that situation. Let's go over to another verse, uh, Psalm 16, and I'll finish here in five minutes to give uh, Jeff a chance. Psalm 16. This is a golden psalm, and it's one worth memorizing. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. And I'll just read uh, the first three verses. That's all we're going to cover. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. David is going through a severe trial here, but you'd never know it by reading this. Usually his golden psalms, the victims, come at a time of great trial. But there's a, like a quiet joy as you read this. There are many dangers in life. There's no hint of despair. Spurgeon has said this about verse 1. Preserve me from the world. Let me not be carried away with its excitements, nor to fear its frowns. Preserve me from the devil. Let him not tempt me above what I am able to bear. Thirdly, preserve me from myself. Keep me from growing envious, selfish, high-minded, proud, slothful. Preserve me from those evils into which I see others run, and preserve me from those evils into which 
I myself are most apt to run. Keep me from evils, evils known and from evils unknown. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. When I learned it, it was keep me safe, O God. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. So it's towards God, keep me safe. And then the second verse. O oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. So here we have a picture of David praying with his, his soul towards God. You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And the way I've taken this verse in my own life is to say, uh, you're my God. Where else can I go? There's no other place. There's no other safe place to be but in Christ. And I want to be there safe and secure from all alarm. I guess the way the hymn goes. That's where you want to be, safe in Christ. And so my soul says, you are my Lord. That's what Saul was saying in Acts chapter 9. You're my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And what a believer learns very quickly is that uh, you begin to look, you're in Christ, and that's where you want to be. Because you look in yourself and you see failure, you see guilt from old sins and regrets and all that. Uh, and apart from Christ, we're nothing. Okay. There's that, another verse that I always say, I always prayed before I went to teach my classes, and apart from you, I am nothing. Okay, it's a big zero. Apart from Christ, you're nothing. Zero. Zip. The last one, verse 3. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And what this says to my heart, and I hope it says it to you, if you memorize this, and this is your prayer, you recognize that your delight has to be in other believers. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David loved those who loved the Lord. And so in our times of trial, first we pray to God to preserve us from the danger of making the wrong, wrong choices. Okay, Preserve us from Satan. Preserve us from the world. Preserve us from ourselves. That's the biggest danger. Then he says, you're my Lord apart from you. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And the last is to, in that situation, to delight in the saints. In that trial you're going through, delight in the saints. Anyway, I hope this is encouraging to you. And I'll just turn it over to Jeff now. Thank you, Rick, for allowing me to share the meeting with you this evening. Um, it's funny what you're talking about with uh, the question of, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that was my prayer um, as, I was, as I was preparing for this week. Uh, Rick was talking about options and how we find ourselves in interesting situations on occasion where we do need to make a decision. And I must say, before I really begin here, that I was in a situation much like that about a week ago when I got an email from Rick. 
asking me if I could share the meeting with him tonight. My first thought was to say, wow, my, uh, as kindly as I could, boy, I am, Rick, I'm really busy this time of the year. It really is a busy time for me this time of the year. How am I going to manage my time? Would I even have the time to prepare? And so, uh, so I was going to say, well, it, it, I probably just can't even consider. But I thought, you know, let me, let me pray about it. And in so many words, I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, those words had no sooner been prayed that I started getting just kind of a nudging that you can do this. Um, if, if, you th if I, I started thinking, well, if I have trouble with the time management and if it's hard to put it all together in just a week time, uh, one week's time, um, am I being a good steward of my time? And right there I thought, well, I could talk about stewardship, stewardship of time and talent and treasure. And then I just, I felt like the Lord said, well, trust me, you know, you know what you can speak on and together we'll find that time. And from there on, I trusted he would give me the words. So again, thank you, Rick. That was uh, timely, and I appreciate it. So um, my hope is that I can use God's word in an, in an applicable way to talk about stewardship and the wisdom that must be sought in order to please God with how we manage what he has entrusted us with. I think a neat way to categorize what we are responsible for is to realize that it can boil down to us managing our time, our talent, and our treasure Three T's, time, talent, and treasure, and they really do often overlap, I find, in life, quite often. Well, let's look at a neat little passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Turn with me there, if you would. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. David is speaking, kind of near the end of his life, starting with verse 11. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yeah, for some context, David is speaking to an assembly of the, all of the officials of Israel. They're gathered in Jerusalem, and he's been speaking to them about the plans for the temple. The temple dedicated to the Lord, that is, and it's where Solomon's throne will be. And they, he's getting ready for the transition from himself to Solomon. So leading up to this passage in chapter 28, in the beginning of 29, uh, David describes in detail to the assembly of officials about all the precious metals, the minerals, the wood, the fine stone, etc., that will be used in large quantities, very abundant quantities, some of which is his own, David's own personal, mater personal material, his own treasure, so to speak. But he has a really neat attitude towards how he is describing this. He says the following as he's, he's really praising God after describing to the assembly of the details of God's temple. Verse 11, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. He's not leaving anything out. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. That's his choice. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. And that's my prayer to you right now. I would say it certainly sounds like David knows something about stewardship, and at least where it, be, where it should begin with a reverence towards God. He knows that absolutely everything belongs to God. He doesn't come out and give a speech like a CEO of a corporation uh, praising the workers and patting everyone on the back for how awesome they all are and reading off how much profit the company's making. He's not, that's not why he's there. Instead, David is talking about giving. He's talking about rejoicing in the Lord for what he has already provided. And David doesn't focus really so much on the resources, but instead on the heart of the people 
that are going to be using these resources? Look earlier, in fact, at the second part of verse 5 of the chapter. David puts a charge to the people, to the assembly. And who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? Who's willing to do that? Who's going with me? David makes, I think, a great connection to the resources that the workers are going to use and the truth that it was God alone who provided those resources. Let's also look at verse 16 here, just a bit further down. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee an house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand and is all thine own. I think David's being extremely careful and reverent before he's getting into this building. He's reminding not only himself, but he's praising God, reminding the assembly that without God, they would, have to, they would have nothing to work with. In fact, they would have no work. They would have no time to do the work and no materials with which to build the temple. God created time and he created everything they're going to use. Furthermore, without God, they would have no reason to even build the temple because they're building it for him. I also love how David uh, brings a sense of responsibility into the picture as well. He starts pointing to the, the men that are listening. As the very next verse in verse 17 says, I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy thy people which are present here to offer willingly unto thee. He's going in completely and, and saying, Lord, we're committing ourselves to you. I, I know that uh, you are going to be looking at what we're doing, and that's important. He's saying really very unashamedly, Lord, I get it. This stuff is all yours. This gold, this bronze, this silver, the precious stones, even the opportunity to work and serve you. It's all yours, Lord. And as far as how we take care of it, you, Lord, will look to, at our stewardship as a reflection of our heart's attitude towards you. David is older at this time in 1 Chronicles. He's nearing the end of his life, though. He has had a life full of lessons to learn from. But David wasn't always so wise in his stewardship. I can certainly identify with that. But interestingly about David, there's hardly another person in all of Scripture that we have a very detailed life story for from childhood through adult than we do for David. So we get the whole scope. We learn a lot from just his life itself. And uh, so let's, let's contrast David's attitude as an older man with a decision he made in a much earlier time in his life. You may guess what this is already. But turn with me, if you'd like, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I think we're going to sort of the middle-aged phase of David's life. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is not going to be good for David, but it's in the Word for a reason, and we learn from it. And it came to pass, this is verse 1, chapter 11. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. He didn't do a thing. He tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed this is verse 2, uh, and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. 
as you probably know, it's Bathsheba. Well, you can see where this is going, and you may very well know the story. This turned out to be the beginning of a very foolish, foolish time for David. And this was probably when he was in his mid-40s, like I said. But why did it happen at that particular time in David's life? Where was he at? What was he doing? What was he doing that caused his sin? What kind of frame of mind was he in? Why did he allow it to happen? It was a choice that he made. Well, look at his relaxed approach to the situation and his attitude this time. Again, looking back at the verse. At the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent, not himself, he sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. The word tarried, I looked it up. I was very curious. What does this mean? It could mean dawdle, delay, or stall. Hopefully you can picture what David was doing. While the young bucks went off to battle, essentially he was doing nothing, wasting idle time. Maybe driven by pride, but that's what got him in trouble. So what is in these lessons from David's life that is applicable to us today? Should we make sure not to sit around Jerusalem in the springtime when the kings are heading out to battle? Should we be extra careful not to walk on the roof at night? The bottom line is we need to be careful with how we manage our resources, one of which does happen to be time. It wasn't that long ago, right here, probably about the end of May, I think, that many of us were gathered in the, in the other building over there and celebrating some high school and college graduations for some of the, the younger troops here. So if I can speak to the heart of those young men and women, I realize there's not a whole lot of them here, but listen to the podcast and tell them. <laughs> um, those fresh graduates, uh, if, if they would specifically be able to, to hear this, uh, I would really like to share my hope and prayer that you folks would begin to think very clearly and to pray very fervently about stewardship, how you will manage your time, your talent, your treasure as you carry on into college or your 20s, when you steadily begin to take on more and more responsibility. You know, it's one thing to not clean your room when you're eight years old. It's another when you get older, but things start to really matter. It won't be long before you're trying to find the right career, the right spouse, the right house, the right place to purchase a home, the right way to plan financially, and so on. These are big decisions. And I pray that you use God's wisdom in your decisions. The world likes to throw advice at you. There, there is, there is a wisdom that you can find, but please go to God. I would think that many of us in this room could probably tell many stories of how we've learned the hard way about what being truly responsible means. This could mean financially. It could mean as a student, as a spouse, an employee, um, financial planning, anything. The list is nearly endless. We know that God can always use our mistakes to show us his love and concern, but he, he has put numerous examples in his word about the importance of seeking wisdom. The Lord loves us so much that when we do seek him, he willingly corrects and redirects us away from ungodly places that we may have strayed to. But it's clear that he would rather we make wise decisions ahead of time through seeking his will and his wisdom rather than having to go through mistakes and for him having to pull us back over. Don't do that again. Come on back. It's, it can be a tough road back, but the Lord loves us enough to do that. He also loves us enough to give us wisdom in his word. Uh, the book of James, if you can start turning there, it contrasts two ways of gaining understanding and wisdom in chapter 3. Turn to James chapter 3. And if you get to verse 13, we're going to look at a passage about 13 through 18, a contrast of different, of different wisdoms. Verse 13, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? 
Let him shew out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This, quote, wisdom, this worldly wisdom, descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's the wisdom I want. That's the wisdom I want for us as a body. And in verse 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Not of those that try to keep peace, those that make peace. There's a difference. Let me share here a quick story that I think also contrasts these two forms of wisdom. I went through a particularly trying time right after graduated from college. Um, I had not really been walking with the Lord through that time, and God had to do some redirecting with me. Uh, I really felt lost about what I was supposed to do with my career. I had uh, finished my degree in geology, and I also was getting pretty tired of being in school. And Michelle and I were engaged, so I couldn't just quit my job as an environmental geologist. And as the reality of this whole situation began to sink in, I steadily grew in my discontentment and my insecurity, my anger, my anxiety. I had never felt that in my life, that I, I just really felt lost. I did not know what to do. I felt really like over a barrel. I tried to talk with various people about where I was at, people who I'd gone to school with. I mean, I just reached out to anybody that made sense to me. Uh, a graduate assistant I trusted for some career advice. Some different friends, even my parents, I was really seeking. Uh, I received all kinds of advice, and I was told just to try to find the right job, and eventually I would be in the right place at the right time, and all would be well. I can now look back and see that that was worldly wisdom I was given. It wasn't necessarily bad advice. It wasn't pure, though. It wasn't the wisdom. It, it was, at, in fact, wisdom described in verse 15. Wisdom descendeth not from above, but earthly, sensual, and so on. And it really it led me nowhere. But several months into this trial, after a lot of prayer and godly encouragement from my wife, I decided to meet with a counselor at the church I was going to. It took me a while to kind of get over my pride and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to ask some questions and I need to go right to the source and figure, figure something out. After explaining my situation to his counselor, I, I met him right when I walked in the door. I just called up and made an appointment. They said, come on in. Okay. Anyway, I was hoping that he would have something to say that it would Im immediately just make me feel better. And he said, well, it sounds like you might need to think about what Paul said about being content. Content? Content? I, I wasn't ready to hear that. That was the last thing I thought I would hear that day, to try to be content with where I was in life. I was ready to do something else, and I didn't like hearing it. Let's look at that passage he was referring to. I don't remember him actually pointing to it that day, but he, he said, try to be like Paul, be content. That's Philippians 4. Verses 11 and 12. Let's look at that. Philippians 4. Philippians, what a great book for just Christian living, full of great nuggets. Verse, verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul is saying that contentment is, is a learned and a developed position for our heart to be in. 
It needs to be sought after and prayed over. It doesn't happen immediately. It needs to be, uh, it's, a, it's a trained and developed mindset. And even though I didn't like that advice I was given about contentment back then, I knew that counselor was right. As I walked away, I said, this is going to be tough, but I think he's right. And it wasn't until I sought true contentment, really, truly sought it, by asking the Lord for it, that God was then willing to reveal himself to my heart, a heart that was not nearly as agitated or worried or angered or anxious anymore. I know God did something there. He must have. I learned that God can work in a contented, peaceful heart much more clearly and easily than he can work in an anxious one. I mention this because contentment is a valuable part of godly stewardship. So with the beginning of a new school year, and other new seasons in life coming along, with many of us making decisions about perhaps what classes to take, what activities to join, what to take on, what to pay for, what to study in college, how much to take out for student loans, or other decisions like that. I hope that we'll be seeking the Lord for how to manage what he has entrusted us with. You may be in a place in life where you haven't been before. Maybe you're planning the final phases of retirement. Maybe you're raising infants or very young children. Maybe you've just been given an estate, a will, or a trust that needs to be executed properly. Regardless, this is a complex world, constantly pressing against our time, our finances, our attention, and so on. And we need to seek the Lord's wisdom. The world will beat us up if we don't go to the source. I'll close by sharing about an experience that proved to be extremely valuable for our marriage and our family. And I thank God for how it was orchestrated into our lives. I didn't go seek it. It's one of those things I knew God said, you need to do this. So about two years into our marriage, Michelle told me that she knew of some other couples uh, in our church, couples our age, who were trying to get a, a weekly financial stewardship, a, a kind of Bible study sla- uh, financial course started. And of course, she asked me about it, and I replied with, well, how much does it cost? Can, can we afford to spend money on a course on financial stewardship? And do we have the time for it? When are we going to do it? But honestly, it turned out to be one of the best decisions we could have ever made. And I only regret that I didn't have an opportunity to learn God's principles of stewardship a little better when I was younger. Everything from giving, budgeting, investing, diversifying, balancing work with family life, and raising children properly was covered, and and, and so much more. We were vaguely aware of these biblically-based ideas before we did the study, but we realized in a much deeper way that God does indeed own everything. That was one of the first things we learned. He owns it all. It's his. Our life and our breath is his, the physical as well as the spiritual but that he entrusts us with a portion of it to manage. That's pretty neat when you think about it. God owns everything, but who does he trust it with? Us. We can draw nearer to him with how we do that, with how we manage his stuff, by seeking his wisdom with any decisions having to do with how we spend our time, how we use our talents, and how we make financial decisions, or just decisions about anything in general. We also were reminded that God is the author of salvation, but that the choice is still left up to us as to what we do with his son, Jesus Christ. He provides, but we get to choose. I'm still learning all the time about what good godly stewardship is. I've made my share of mistakes, when I've had, when, and I've made decisions from my own fleshly initiative, but I've also seen God do amazing things when I couldn't do anything else but trust him, when there's only one option, as Rick talked about. We've had times when we didn't know where the next paycheck was going to come from, But God is faithful, and he simply asks us to have faith in his faithfulness. But regardless of what phase of life we're in, which is different for all of us, the need for wise stewardship is always there, always a principle that we need to heed as we serve the Lord. And I pray that we do go before the Lord to ask for wisdom, regardless of whether we're 18 years old or 80 years old.
I can think of no better goal in life than to want to hear the Lord say, when I see his face for the first time, the same words that are in Matthew 25, verse 21, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So like Rick brought up earlier, Lord, what do you want me to do? I hope we're never afraid to seek him for the answer to that question. I, I hope that we always uh, are working on that relationship and being a good steward of our salvation and the sanctification process as it goes on and on. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your creation, for you, for your son. I thank you for this assembly. I thank you for your word. All of these things you ask us to be careful with. You've entrusted us with them, but they still belong to you. Lord, you are uh, my Lord and King and Savior and friend. I pray that uh, I do ask for wisdom. I pray that as a body of believers, we ask for wisdom with all that we do. We thank you for this evening, and uh, we pray for those that aren't here tonight, uh, and I would just lift them up and ask for your guiding hand. As we go forward into the next week as well, guide us and give us wisdom. We thank you, we praise you, in this name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.